At Jiffy Lube, it's our job to make car care make sense with personalized service reviews that swap the car talk for straight talk so you know what your car is telling you and what to do about it. Putting you in the driver's seat of car care? That's a job for Jiffy. Hello, it is slightly late, I know, and I'm sorry, but this is your monthly episode of Fascinated. This is the October episode. Um, I'm not going to keep you with chatter at the top, uh, mainly because I have a cold and that is where I've got my sexy Barry White voice from, as you can hear. Um, So I'll just say, if you enjoy this episode, please do share it with your friends and online and leave a nice review on iTunes. And when I say nice, I mean absolutely glowing. Five stars, please. Uh, This is an expensive podcast to make, which is why it is monthly. So the bigger the audience, the more episodes I will be able to make. So please do share it and I will love you forever from the bottom of my heart. If you want to get in touch, you can drop me an email and you can see the full list of my solo tour dates on GerardFarrelly.com. I still have some dates with Sarah Millican uh, in November in Sheffield and York. But I am also doing a solo tour in Ireland. So I am in Clonakilty next Wednesday uh, in Debarris. And then on the 27th, which is the Saturday, I'm in Port Leash. And then uh, over November, December, I go to places like Limerick, um, Nall, Ratoth. Um, there's a Galway show. So keep an eye on the website um, because I'm adding some more dates for after Christmas. Okay, this is a good one. This is Chesney Hawkey. was absolutely great. Enjoy. Hello, you are very welcome to another episode of Fascinated. My guest in this one is Chesney Hawks. Chesney Hawks was born into a showbiz family. His dad Len was in the 60s band The Tremolos and his mother Carol was a TV actress. His sister Keely was the lead singer of the 90s band Transistor and his brother Jody was the drummer in Chesney's band from the start right up to today. When Chesney was 17, he told his father that he wanted to leave school and become a rock star. His father, who well knew the pitfalls of the music industry, said that he had to do it by the end of his summer holidays or he was going back to school. During that summer, Chesney's journey to stardom was interrupted when he had to have his wisdom teeth out. But when he came around, he was lying in a hospital bed and on the TV, he saw Roger Daltrey from The Who doing an interview about trying to find a young musician to play his son in a movie. It's my boy, Buddy. Buddy, come and meet Paul. Hello, son. Hi. You sing a bit, do you? Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope so, because those things had to pack it in. He's got wife trouble. With a mouthful of cotton wool, Chesney explained to his parents that he was going to audition. The movie was Buddy's song. Chesney got the part, and on the way to his final audition, his dad pulled the car over and said, Son, you don't have to do this if you don't want to. Not only did Chesney do the part, he set about recording and writing the soundtrack which served as his first album. And the rest, as they say, is history. The movie Buddy Song was a moderate success, but when the one and only was released it burned up the charts. At the time, the UK top 10 was filled with pop songs and this was a super confident guy who wanted to be a rock star. He had a big voice and a leather jacket and a guitar. The song was a sophisticated rock song with four key changes. It needed proper musical chops and the world lapped up Chesney Hawks. Chesney 
Two more songs were released from the soundtrack to Buddy Song, but nothing came close to the success of his first single. The Buddy Song soundtrack had two new songs added and others removed and was retitled as the one and only for release in America. It was another huge hit and Chesney had the world at his feet. But after some singles that failed to match the success of the one and only, in 1993, the follow-up album Get The Picture was given just a tentative release. It was a very good album, but sales didn't match the debut. Chesney began to see that the writing was on the wall when the record company stopped returning his phone calls. He had delivered the hits, made lots of money for a lot of people, but they were done with him. And for a 21-year-old, that's a lot to take. At the time, he had made lots of money from initial success and had bought himself a home. But the money was beginning to dry up. Like a lot of successful pop singers, Chesney hadn't understood that all the money that was being lavished on him at the time of his success would be owed back to the record company. It was actually 10 years before he recouped the record company's initial outlay and it was 9 years before Chesney put out another single and 15 years before he released another album. During that time, Chesney played in bands, dreading when he would be recognised and asked to play the one and only. He wrote lots of songs for other people. Tricky, A1, Hearsay, Tears for Fears and also a lot of pop idol winners from various countries have recorded his songs. He also got married and he moved to Los Angeles and had three children. But it was at a university gig that he was dreading that finally Chesney got his mojo back and renewed his love for the song that started it all off. I'm going to leave you with this song that I put out in 1991 with the one and only. Let me He has since released two more solo albums, Another Fine Mess and Real Life Love. Chesney appears regularly at festivals and still gigs all around the UK. He has appeared on the West End in musicals and has also taken part in some reality TV. Now, to be perfectly honest, reality TV has been an absolute disaster for Chesney. He took part in the games and ended up having surgery on his hip after an accident. And then in 2012, he was cast in Dancing on Ice and during rehearsals, he broke his leg and tore ligaments. On the bright side, he did come out of Celebrity Masterchef with all of his fingers, so I suppose that's better than nothing. Now, this interview has a lot of twists. He told us about the famous person that he once delivered newspapers to, the film director who uses the one and only in every film, and I also got to clear up a weird memory I have associated with Chesney Hawks. I was convinced that at some point in his career, Chesney had recorded a song about sitting at home watching porn. Now, I could not find any evidence of this online anywhere, so I thought, oh, I probably just made it up. But I decided to ask. 
Chesney has come up on this podcast twice before. Joe Yule spoke about the work that he has done for the Missing People charity and Naomi Coleman talked about writing with him in a castle in France. Both said that he was a great guy and they were absolutely right. It is impossible to not like this man. This is Chesney Hawks. And I, and I promise that uh, in the intro, I will not introduce you as the one and only Chesney Hawks. You're going to make that a challenge, are you? <laughs> yeah. I'd imagine at this point that's getting a little bit old, is it? Well, sometimes I do, um, I do challenge uh, people to introduce me uh, without using that phrase. But, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> it, it's kind of like uh, it's almost impossible. <laughs> I know. Um, so the fact that you ended up in entertainment... There's no, there's no mystery there. I mean, you, you very much went into the family business, didn't you? Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. My, my dad was a, a rock star, bona fide rock star. Um, and my mum uh, was a, a game show hostess and actress. And so, yeah, I mean, we, we were, the three of us were never going to become uh, accountants, <laughs> put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> and was it, was it all rock and roll when you were growing up? Because your, da- your dad was in the tremolos with... Uh, if I'm right, Brian Poole, who is the father of the girls from Alicia's Attic. Yes, man, you've done your research there. There yeah, you so, go. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm very impressed, yeah. Um, yeah, the girls, uh, well, Brian Poole was the original uh, singer with, with Brian Poole and the Tremolos. And then in, I think, 1964, uh, my dad joined as the bass player. And, um, and then not long after that, Brian left and then dad stepped forward as the singer. So they, and then they went on to have kind of, you know, their, their big successes, really. They had success with Brian Paul as well. But then they went on to, you know, record Silence is Golden and Here Comes My Baby and all the, all the big hits were after that. So, OK. Um, yeah. And so my and my yeah. So my upbringing. Yeah. Very rock and roll. My dad, all of my dad's friends were like you know, uh, 60s superstars like Jerry Marsden from Jerry and the Pacemakers and, you know, all, all the, the the searchers and the Marmalade and Dave D, Dozy Beaky McIntyre, they were all like <laughs> friends of Dad. <laughs> Those amazing names, amazing names from the 60s bands. Um, was it ever an option for you to end up as an accountant? Like, was there ever a, a, a day job that you thought, OK, that's what I'm going to do before this whole pop thing started? No, no, I was always uh, going to be uh, in the music industry. I, I never wanted to do anything else. I mean, the only other proper job that I had uh, was as a young boy, uh, was a, a paper boy. <laughs> oh, really? So, well, <laughs> I was a paper yeah, boy I, as well. Oh, right. I was, yeah, fun enough, so something that not a lot of people know is I was Billy Ocean's paper boy. How about that? No <laughs> way. <laughs> yeah. And Billy and I, we bump into each other at these... Um, you know, um, um, retro festivals like Rewind yeah, and, absolutely. and stuff like that. We bumped into each other and, of course, we're sharing a stage now. You know, and we always have a laugh about the fact that I was his paper boy. <laughs> that is... <laughs> I know. And I know, it's a classic. So, uh, you, you were Billy Ocean's paper boy. <laughs> and how do you go from uh, from Billy Ocean's paper boy to... Essentially, <laughs> your, like, your dad gave you... He gave you... Uh, I don't know if this is true or not now, but he gave you a 12-week period where... If you're going to become a pop star, you need to do it in this or you're, it's back to school with you. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of like that. And I left school at the age of 16. And, uh, you know, I, he said, what, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to, you know, get in, I'm going to be a musician. That's, that's what I'm going to do. And he, and he basically, his words were, well, I tell you what, son, I'll, I'll let you pursue this. But if you're not earning money 
uh, as a musician by the end of the summer, then you're going to have to, you know, think again and go back to school. And and I was always so passionate about music that I never had a backup plan. I never had a, a plan B, you know. And I think there's something to be said for that, actually, because uh, I... You know, I know a lot of people that that have that same kind of mentality that no, that's it. This is what I'm doing, and that's that. And if you, if some people say if you have a backup plan, then there's always that kind of like thing in your head, that little voice in your head say, well, if this doesn't work out, then you know I've got something else. But if you don't have that. It has to work out. <laughs> you know yeah. what I, mean? I used to work in IT and I, I, I'm, I'm a stand-up comedian now, but for, there was a long time when I was doing both. And people used to say yeah. that to me, oh, as long as you've got a plan B, you, you're, you know, you'll never be hungry <laughs> and it's, uh, it, there's yeah. an edge missing. And I always thought yeah. that is a load of crap. <laughs> but really, yeah. your mindset really does change when, when it's the only wage coming in. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I, I was one of those precocious kids that just like, I knew I was going to do it, you know, so... So I went out and uh, started uh, getting gigs in local pubs and wine bars and, you know, I played weddings and um, you know, I played in brownie huts and, I mean, wherever they'd have me, you know, in hotels. <laughs> and, uh, and that's how I learned, that's really how I learned my craft, really, to be honest, sitting in the corner of rooms playing the piano and playing playing Stevie Wonder and Elton John and John Lennon songs, you know. And by the end of the summer, I was actually, you know, I was earning a living. So he, he, had, to, he had to stick to his word. <laughs> well done, Dad. Well done, Chesney. That worked out well. <laughs> that worked out really well. And so how did you go then from, uh, you're playing in bars and then all of a sudden you are, I mean, when The One and Only was released, it was your debut single and you were, you were unknown, I suppose. I'm correct. Yeah, I was, yeah. Yeah, I mean, completely oh, yeah, unknown. Completely. And you were going into, I suppose, 90s, ni- like 1991. That was Stock Aiken and Waterman heyday, where yeah, there were all it these was. People. It was Jason, it was Kylie, it was Rick, it was, uh, you know, uh, all those kind of, um, those acts. Yeah, very much so. And then you um, come in with this rock anthem, an unknown guy <laughs> with a rock, a kid with a rock anthem, and then literally take over. How did that happen? Um, well, it originally came from, um, I mean, I was forever, even at that age, kind of trying to figure out how to get a record deal. That was the kind of the holy grail, you know, and, uh, and I used to now and again do kind of gigs in London and try and get record company people down and all that kind of stuff. I was constantly trying to do that, sending letters and, you know, cassette tapes to record companies and stuff like that. Um, and then uh, I saw Roger Daltrey being interviewed on uh, uh, the lead singer of The Who, Roger Daltrey, uh, being interviewed uh, on GMTV, uh, Good Morning Britain, or, or whatever it was in those days. And he was appealing for a young boy that could sing and could play uh, um, an instrument and stuff. And they were appealing for this young boy to, to play uh, his son in a film, basically. So so I went uh, up for... Uh, for this film uh, and it was like a, you know a big cattle call kind of uh, American Idol type uh, you know X Factor type of uh, audition and eventually I you know I, I kept getting called back and everything else and I eventually got the part of Roger's son and I really I went along with this because I thought this would be a way into the music industry and it turned out to be that exact thing and and uh, so I you know I played I played his son and and the one and only ended up being uh, the first single from the soundtrack of that album. So that's how it all came about. And when the when the one and only came out, like, was there any inkling when you know when you recorded the song, uh, or or even when they were picking songs for the movie that this was going to be the the kind of monster that it ended up? Oh God, no! There was, you know, I I think that um, 
originally nobody in the project wanted to do the one and only. It was funny. It was a uh, it it wasn't a popular choice because it was kind of an outside song. Nick Kershaw wrote the song. Uh, my dad found the song and and uh, was very up for for, for us uh, recording it. But but because it was a very kind of an insular project, you know, it was all the songs were written in house. I wrote a few of the songs for the film. All the lyrics were written by the guy who wrote the script and the book for for the film. And so the one and only was a total outside song. So a lot of people weren't really happy about doing it. If you see what I mean. So um, it's funny how that came about. But but then we ended up recording it, and of course it sounded like a hit song. So. Uh, you know, when it when it came out, um, you don't know what's going to happen, Garode. It's like a, you know, whether a song or a record is going to make it or not. There's so many factors involved in it, um, and I guess the wind was uh, was definitely in our direction when we put that record out, and obviously it ended up uh, you know, going off and, and doing really well. But we. <laughs> You know, I mean, for me, I was young and impressionable and whatever, but I, but I always had that belief that it, that that it was going to do well. You know, I, I just thought, oh well, this is obviously it's going to be a hit. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but I was very precocious, I guess, in that way. <laughs> well, I, I mean, and 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 it was a bit of a monster. I mean, do you know the statistics on it? Like, how many how many did it shift? Like, because it was number one in like nine countries, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah, it was definitely a massive hit. It was top ten in the states, number one in Japan, and you know, pretty much all over Europe. Um, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but it was definitely a couple of million um, units shifted, should we say, vinyls in, <laughs> in those days, yeah. So, yeah, it was definitely a big one. I think it, the st- there was one statistic I remember that it was the 20th biggest selling single of the 90s. Oh, wow. God, that's So, big. yeah. That's wow. pretty, yeah, that's a good statistic. I like that one. <laughs> that is very impressive. Wow, over 10 years. <laughs> What was it like then? You've had this monster success and it's your very first single. When did it hit that you, like, when did it hit you that you're going to have to follow this now? Yeah, I mean, that was, um, it wasn't far off of it, to be honest with you. Because, I mean, when we when we released the second single, it, you have to remember that it was uh, very much based on the film. So we were promoting a film. Oh, so yeah. the second single was a, was a single was a was a song from the film, and uh, I think perhaps in hindsight we probably should have gone with you know another kind of a pop song, but it was a little bit uh, more of a kind of a you know a, a film soundtrack song. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, and and of course you know it is very very difficult to follow a song like the, a success like the one and only. I mean that really was. Uh, I mean I remember my manager at the time, Bill Kerbishley, who managed the Who and everything. Uh, he, I remember having a meeting with him in the office when when the record was at number five, and and he's first thing he said in front of all these people was, "Well, I hope this record is not a number one." <laughs> so, oh wow! And at the time, at the time, I just thought, "Well, that's crazy," uh, but you know, in hindsight, maybe um, it, it would have been easier to follow if it wasn't such an enormous hit. But uh, but you know, I, I'm proud of what what happened with that song and, and that record, and I wouldn't change it for the world, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's gas. Uh, it's still the like the original, uh, the original version of it's still an absolute banger. I mean, I, I think they're good records. They just don't date, sure they don't. I mean, I was listening to an ABBA record there uh, during the week and, and an album, and you just think, God, this you know this just doesn't date. No, it still sounds amazing. Yeah, I mean, the ABBA was. I mean, yeah, absolutely. There's certain records that that ha- I call it, I call it a song with wings. You know, and. Um, Nick, Nick and I, Nick Kershaw and I, are really good friends now and uh, have been ever since then. And, you know, we talk about it and say 
that we, we don't kind of have ownership of of that record anymore. It's like it belongs to the fans, you know, and and just to to see it uh, all these years later, when you know we play it live, just to see the crowd react to it and kind of it picks up, you know, it picks up a crowd like 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 no other song I ever play, you know, and 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 I'm I'm just proud uh, even now uh, just to see it kind of still have that life, you know, and it means so much to to so many people and I've had over the years I've had people you know tell me about how it was played at their dad's funeral or at the or at their friend's wedding or you know it's oh, that, wow. that kind of stuff that just kind of you know it's 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 really amazing it's so cool <laughs> I, I actually used to listen to it on my paper and believe it or not <laughs> <laughs> on tape <laughs> and believe on me cassette. yeah exactly I, you're showing your age grown <laughs> i was not delivering in an area that billy ocean would live believe me <laughs> i needed all the company <laughs> um so, <laughs> when, so when you went and um I, i'm still stuck on billy o- like what paper does billy ocean get can you remember well, I think it was like uh, the Times. It was it was quite a highbrow, if I remember <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he's quite an intelligent guy, is our Billy. Yeah. You're, you're not covering up from him. It wasn't like the Daily Sport, was it? <laughs> no, no, definitely not. No, definitely not. And you know, Very where, where I grew where I grew up on the sun on a Sunday. Uh, you know, you had to go back like eight times just because you know the Sunday papers were so huge. You know, you just to deliver the financial <laughs> times and all that kind of rubbish. <laughs> oh, um, funny. So, uh, like after your after the first record, which was uh, the soundtrack to to Buddy's song, you made uh, you made another follow up uh, record with the the label, which actually that is an album that I sometimes forget about. I actually forget how good that is. Um, the the Get the Picture album. Um, <laughs> right. Did you? How much pressure was on you when you were when you were making that record? Well, I, I don't really remember feeling too much pressure. Um, I knew I was in good hands because uh, and I, I wrote that album pretty much with with Nick Kershaw. He produced a lot of most of the album anyway, um, and uh, you know I had good people around me. I knew the album. I knew the songs were good. I, I knew it was going to be a good record. Um, what I didn't know was that they didn't that the record company didn't really know what to do with me as an artist. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so the pressure came kind of later on when it was time to promote. And, uh, you know, they were just very, they were, I think, a little scared um, of putting too much money into it because, they, you know, because of the, uh, you know, the follow-ups to, um, to the one and only didn't do so, do so, do so well. So I think they were kind of like treading water with me a little bit. You know, they were like, let's put out a single and see how it does. I mean, I, I was privy to that. I just thought they were going to, you know, uh, promote it in the same way they did my last album. But that, okay. I think at the time they were a little bit nervous. So they weren't kind of going to put everything, all their eggs into this, into one basket. And they kind of like, you know, tried out a single and, you know, and in the end up, they, they just, uh, they just kind of pulled the plug on the whole thing, you know? So, uh, so it was a little bit of a difficult time for me, to be honest, Garode. I, you know, it was, uh, that's what I call my kind of dark years there, you know, when uh, one minute, one minute I was in the nightclub and had uh, champagne in the VIP area. And the next minute I was kind of kicked out of the club and I was uh, sitting in the, Sitting in the uh, on the side of the road, uh, licking my wounds, you know. <laughs> and how? I mean, what must that be like to be? You know, you were in your, I suppose, early twenties at this point, and you, mm-hmm. um, you know, you the dream that you've had, you like you've ticked the box on it, and and it's yeah. over. I mean, what is that like to be just sitting there thinking, what the hell am I going to do now? Well, it, it, very difficult to be honest with you, um, because. 
I didn't expect it. Um, uh, so, but it, but you know, it was a humbling experience for me. Um, I think, I, in a way, I'm glad that I've experienced uh, you know ups and downs of the business and and of life in that in that respect. Um, I, I think there's some there's definitely part of me that thinks that if I hadn't experienced that and that I carried on having the kind of success that I was having, that I would be a very different person now. Um, you know, and now I have, uh, you know, my priorities are very uh, intact, I think, my family and I have children and my wife and that's it's the most important thing to me and uh, and I still, now I have a little bit more control over what I do musically and, you know, I, I, I uh, am very grateful to that, you know, so I think I'm a little bit more of a balanced person because of that experience. Um, but at the time, yeah, I, you know, I, I can tell a lie, Captain, it was difficult. <laughs> yeah. And you, you went on to, you know, you, you brought out some more records. You In 2008, you had, um, God, I can't remember the name of it, but it, Another Fine Mess. No, another uh, Fine yes. Mess. Yeah. That was an excellent album. Uh, but it, there was 15 years in, in between. Um, yeah. And in that 15 years, did were you reluctant to make music? I mean, I know you were always writing, but, um, you know, now you, you write and produce music, so you were always around it. But the 15 years where you didn't put anything out... Why did you shy away? Well, there was a lot of reasons, really. One was I was trying to find myself as an artist, you know, and I, at the time it was kind of mid-90s, so it was like, a, you know, I wanted to be in Radiohead, I wanted to be respected as a proper artist, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So I so I went away and, and you know, turned my guitar up to 11 and uh, did a bit of shoegazing, and, and I think I kind of lost my way, really, direction-wise a little bit. Um, but but in many ways, I, I learned my craft the other way round. You know, I mean, I was very young when I had my success, so I never really yeah. had a chance to kind of, you know, go play in a club where, you know, in, in front of two men in flat caps and a Jack Russell and where my, <laughs> where my, amp, <laughs> where my amp blew up and, and you, you don't go down so well and, you you know, you're trying out new material and all that kind of stuff. But I feel like I did it. I, that's when I did that. You know, I, I, I grew up, as it were. Um, and so... You know, I I I, tra- I went to the to New York and and played uh, had a band out there and lived there for a while and then I did New- I did LA and I had a band there for a while and eventually came back here to the UK and uh, and I at that particular time I hadn't been I hadn't gone out as me under under the name Chesney Hawks I hadn't played live I hadn't done anything under my name for you know, the you know, best part of a decade to be honest with you and uh, so I, I eventually I, I started getting. Um, you know, inquiries to whether I would, uh, you know, come and do concerts at, at like, uh, you know, universities and stuff like that. And I was a bit nervous to, to do it. But uh, but I, uh, you know, I accepted a couple of these offers and, and, and turned up at these gigs with great trepidation, thinking 10 years later that, you know, no one's going to remember me. And, and you know, it, I was, it was very much the other, the opposite. And, I you know, I, I felt a lot of love from the crowd and there was like people with my face on their t-shirt and and it turns out that in that 10 years that the 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 record had been kind of handed down like a mantle to uh, yeah. you know uh, to students up and down the country and and uh, and that felt really really amazing and and I I never looked back from then on I just you know I I carried on playing live and that that was that was kind of like for you know the, the last 10 years of my of my life yeah I, I spoke to uh, Carol Decker from Tapau and uh, she mm-hmm. said that after uh, after the band folded, um, she she completely lost her way. But it it was basically mm. she was booked for uh, I think it was a rewind gig, 
and right. she did she was so reluctant and as soon as she did it it completely reinvigorated her i think it was to feel the value that people were placing on her work again just reminded her yes. what she was about i think is that, yeah, is that no, what happened absolutely. to you a hundred percent i can really relate to that because you know your confidence takes a huge knock when something like that happens you know it's a, you know i said it uh, earlier that you know one minute i had all of that you know i had the, the whole machine and i had what I would consider at the time kind of like almost like a family in that record company and my management and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden, overnight, they weren't even calling, they weren't even like answering my calls. So wow. your confident, my confidence took a huge knock, um, even if I didn't admit it at the time. Um, you just think that, you know, your value as an artist is not what you thought it was. So you have to kind of, I had to reevaluate my own um you know, uh, worth in a way. Um, and it's not, not just as an artist, you feel it, you feel it personally. You know, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's I, a I, difficult thing to overcome. <laughs> I, I think when you're, um, I suppose if you look back at old videos of you uh, on stage, like you were kind of a, a, a kind of a cocky rock star. Like you had that yeah. 19 year old, uh, like I think your confidence was very important. Like, I mean, and there was a full head of hair while at work there. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah. That was one no, was... hell of a head of hair. That was, I mean, <laughs> the only time I've seen hair like that since I think is Diane Lockhart in uh, The Good Wife. <laughs> I think she, she took your style, Chesney. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. If it wasn't for me, Diane Lockhart would be nothing. I she tell would you. be nothing. <laughs> um, but but uh, what, what, I can't remember what I was saying there before I insulted you. <laughs> 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 That's karma. Um, yeah. What I was going to ask was, uh, you you went on uh, your your album Real Life Love. Uh, I, I had listened to that a couple of days ago, um, and as a songwriter, you're very like you're a very quirky songwriter. Like, uh, there's a song on it that I just think is absolutely incredible, um, called John Lennon Lived Here. It's mm-hmm. such an incredible song. Like, it's so. It's just written from such a strange perspective. I don't know what it is about it, but uh, yeah. I mean, when when you were developing that craft after everything that had happened um, and, and you were doing gigs. I mean, were you really pissed off that people, you know, that in New York were asking for the one and only? Well, did you, were you yeah. denying your past? It's, um, I've always, since I was a kid, I've always written songs and I'd always, that was, all I ever wanted to do was, was write music and play music. And, and, and so when my success eventually happened, you know, I know I was young at 19, but I had been doing it for a long time at that point. Uh, I I didn't um, ex- ever really expect it to happen in the way that it did, if you know what I mean. I, I didn't expect to be a teen idol, a heartthrob, uh, you know, a kind of a pop in, in that pop machine type of thing. And uh, it wasn't the, the route that I uh, thought was going to happen. You know, I, I always thought that I would be part of a band and, you know, because I, I was into the Beatles and the Kinks and, you know, and I, that, those kind of artists. That's, I always thought if I was going to make it, that was the route it was going to be. But of course, it never happened that way. So, um, so you know, in my, my kind of more recent uh, records, kind of, I think that really shows kind of like the real me, as it, as it were. You know, I, I never had the chance to, to really kind of shine as a, as a as songwriter or give my real um my real sense of me as a as a songwriter um back in those days as a pop star and I never got a chance afterwards really until I started putting records out myself so these last two albums another fine mess and real life love you know it's really it, it's what I uh, wanted to do and and it's the songs that I wanted to put out and the way that I wanted to be perceived as an artist so 
so now I get the chance to to actually you know uh, do my own thing as it were <laughs> and it's and it's amazing I mean just for listeners uh, if you if you haven't heard Real Life Love I really I just can't recommend it enough it's such a brilliant album it really is excellent um, oh thank you thank you for saying Gro I'll, I'll give you that 20 quid after the no problem <laughs> no problem Chelsea you can PayPal me <laughs> PayPal us me um, so at the moment you're 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 kind of producing and, and writing for other artists um, and I was looking at the list it's quite it's quite an impressive list of people that, that you've written for people like Tears for Fears Hearsay A1 Nick Kershaw returning the favour yeah, yeah. We'd, well, as I said, Nick and I have been mates for, for like nearly well twenty seven years now. Probably more, getting on for thirty years. And uh, I always want uh, to make sure I've got a Nick song on on every one of my albums, and, and oh, I excellent. have returned the favour now and again. And he's uh, he's recorded a few songs that we've written together on his albums. So I'm very proud of that. The, I, I wanted to ask you as well about um, the the movie uh, Moon. Uh, it was directed yeah. by Duncan Jones. Uh, you were originally supposed to be in that movie performing the one and only. It, well, the story right? behind the, no, I, I was never supposed to be in that movie, or at least I, I don't think so. Duncan's never told me that he wanted me actually in it. But, uh, but uh, I, yeah, the song, the one and only, was used in a very clever way. Um, and there's, you know, sometimes the one and only is sometimes used in film soundtracks and stuff, you know, on films. Uh, but it was used in a very clever way. If you've never seen the film Moon, um, you, should, you should see it because it's a great film. But it, um, So uh, when that was used and it became like a cult film, um, on Twitter, D- Duncan uh, started tweeting things and people and all the fans of the film started kind of tweeting things, including me, because uh, because I was, you know, the, the song is actually quite a big part of the film. And uh, people were saying things like, well, you, sh- you should have... Uh, you know, um, uh, merchant official merchandise for the film with the uh, a, a alarm clock with the one and only pre preloaded <laughs> on it and stuff like that. And um, so Duncan and I became uh, Twitter friends, and uh, we started talking quite a lot. And then I this is before I lived in Los Angeles, and um, I lived here in, in the UK. And uh, we decided that um, we were going to meet up. So I w- I went to New to uh, to LA on one of my writing trips, and I met up with Duncan, and we. We became mates, and uh, then he carried on making films, and every single one of the, f- the films that he's made, he's included the one and only to some extent. Uh, and it's kind of become like his la- lucky rabbit's foot, you know. <laughs> so, that is so, so cool. Been, yeah, I know, it's, I, it's amazing, I love it, because Duncan's a you know, hugely talented uh, director, and um, you know, he's made some great films. And So uh, Source Code with Jake Gyllenhaal, that we, um, I recorded, um, me and Nick actually recorded... Uh, um, a ringtone for him to be used as Michelle Moynihan's ringtone. <laughs> Amazing. And then, um, and then uh, he uh, he asked if I would be actually in the film Warcraft. So he, uh, <laughs> it's quite a funny story. I know this is a bit of a long winded story, no, but it's quite a good fine. one. He um, he said, "Well, okay. So what what I want is, it's obviously, it's a medieval type film. So I'd like you to dress up as a medieval bard, and can you record like a lute version of?" of the one and only so I'm, like, I'm sure we can do that um, and I said do you have any idea of what you actually want and he said well I've got an idea um, and, he, and he started singing this kind of like you know Pirates of the Caribbean kind of like I am Pirates of Penzance type of thing I mean like you know I am the one and only nobody I'd rather be you know so I said I said to him do me a favour well hang up the phone call me up and leave that on my answer machine, answer machine so that so that I know what you need and I'll go and record it. And he said, as long as you don't, you know, play it to anyone or, or use, <laughs> use it. And I was like, 
no problem, Duncan. I said, so he, he blessed him, he hung up and he did that and he, he sung it onto my answer machine. So I sent him a text and said, thanks for my new ringtone, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so, That's incredible. So I ended up, yeah, so it ended up that in the film, and I actually ended ended up uh, being in the in the film. I dressed up as a medieval bard and played a lute in a in a scene, and, and it, was, it was brilliant. I love it. That's incredible. I mean, when you like when you were on stage with, I mean, it's twenty seven years. Is that since one and only? Yeah, it is. Yeah, oh ninety one. God, yeah. and twenty seven years, and then you're you're in like when you were performing with Diane Lockhart hair. You never thought that in 20 years' time, 27 years' time, you're going to be in a movie playing this as a bard. That's incredible. <laughs> no, definitely not. It has definitely got me into some funny situations, and that's definitely one of them, yeah. That's incredible. Um, and what, what, so what's on the horizon? Because you, you've done some... Obviously, you're, you're, you're doing... Um, it's festival season now, so you've got all of the rewinds and stuff like that. But you also, you're doing yeah. your own shows as well around the UK. Yes, I'm, I'm always um, on the road, to be honest with you. A, a lot of band gigs and a lot of acoustic gigs. Uh, I've got a little mini tour with, uh, with my old mate Tony Hawkes, the comedian and author. He's famous for uh, do, uh, writing the book Round Island with a Fridge. You know that book? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, where he took his bet and, and that he couldn't t- travel around Ireland with a fridge. Yeah, That's so, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Tony's a mate of mine. And we, you know, we're hoping to come to Ireland at some point, actually. Uh, so uh, I'll let you know, Garot. Come and see me and Tony do our little funny little show. <laughs> oh, I'd absolutely love it. Yeah, if you're coming, definitely let me know. And you're, you've done bits and pieces of reality TV as well, uh, which is <laughs> yeah, <so it's, laughs> another show, another ambulance, Chesney, seems to be the way yeah, it's no, going. Yeah, <laughs> No, it seems like every every time I do a reality show, I I ended up, I end up being uh, yeah in plaster. So my wife is now like put put the put the lid on my reality show career. You know, <laughs> I know I've I've had an operation on my hip from uh, water ski jumping. I've I've uh, I broke my leg on dancing on ice. Uh, you know, I I don't know how I got away with MasterChef without cutting my finger off, but I. <laughs> <laughs> we shall see what the future holds. <laughs> we'll see what the future holds. Um, there's just two tiny things I want to ask you just before I go. Uh, one, uh, I wanted to check if you remembered writing a song in a castle in France with Naomi Coleman. She was a previous I guest. I do. Yes. Well, yeah, and I'm, let me try and remember the name of the song. Uh, one Last Second Look. Oh, wow. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, always loved that title. And you know who else was part of that um, that writing session? Howard Jones. Oh wow! Oh my god, <laughs> love Naomi, but I, I haven't seen Naomi since then. Like, so it's probably been twenty years since I saw her. Oh right, okay. I'll, pa- I'll pass on her your, her email address. She's a really good friend of mine. Oh please do! I would love to to get back in contact with her. She's such a lovely girl. Yeah, she's great she's, talent. She's really amazing. As I said, I would love to get back in touch with her. Excellent. And the last thing I wanted to ask was, and I don't know why this is stuck in my head, and I've searched the internet for evidence of this, but it doesn't seem to exist. Uh, did you once write a song about uh, internet porn sites? I did. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's called Porn Again. Okay. <laughs> it, was, it was part of, I was writing for a band in, in LA, uh, this is back in the late 90s, a band in LA called Dickweed. <laughs> <laughs> And so they were like kind of a Green Day punk band. And so I wrote this song, Porn Again, which I must resurrect. It is the funniest song. It's all the lyrics. are You know, remember that um, uh, 
Billy Joel song, um, We Didn't Start the Fire. Oh, yeah, yeah. You remember that song? So it's all like um, very fast paced uh, lyrics in the verses. And so we did, um, it, we went through all of the funniest porn uh, <laughs> film titles. And, and we got them all in there Forest Hump, Pulp Friction, Analyze These. <laughs> <laughs> They're all in that lyric. It's a very funny lyric. Oh, yeah. amazing. Oh, that's fantastic. If you have either of those songs handy, One Last Second Look or Porn Again, I'd love to include clips. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> All right, Chesney, it's been absolutely amazing talking to you. Um, best of luck and thank you so much for uh, making my paper rent not as shit as it could have been. <laughs> <laughs> it's my pleasure. I'm glad, to, I'm glad I was there to help. That was the fantastic Chesney Hawks there. He is such a great guy. You can follow Chesney on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook and his most recent album, Real Life Love, is an absolute gem so you can check that out. It's on iTunes. Also, I have to recommend his previous album, Another Fine Mess, is great as well. So, uh, yeah, check those out. Purchase links to all his stuff is in the information for this episode. Now, there is a new 90s podcast in town and are we going to kill each other? Is there going to be wigs on the green? Absolutely not. Irish comedians Julie J and Emma Doran are two very funny people and they have a podcast on the Headstuff Podcast Network called Up to 90 and it is absolutely excellent. So if you like this show you might like that one so make sure you check it out. Info for my tour and other ways to get in touch are all on garodefarrelly.com and you can follow me on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram and I'm new on Instagram so please do follow me there because I don't have many followers and it's kind of embarrassing but it's mainly cat pics and dinners I'm afraid but do say hello. Uh, Also there will be a new episode soon so thanks for listening. Oh wait there is something I have to play because I got an email from Chesney. It's always nice to be right. Sometimes when these interviews are over, I think, I bet they're really going to miss me. Oh, are you gone? Oh, you are gone. Oh, shoot. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today.